I'm Al of the Shell Tribe, famous for the weedy appearance of our menfolk, but always happy to brave the waves, despite the terrifying creatures who lurk beneath. And I'm Steve of the Rock Tribe, never one to leave a task unfinished, and even prepared to pad out a film's running time to get it done. We are Hammerama, the podcast which loves dinosaurs because neither of us are getting any younger. Our opening track was the wonderful theme to House of the Gorgon by the equally wonderful Reber Clark. And our film this month is a look back to a more distant time than usual, when bikinis and mascara were invented well before language, when dinosaurs ruled the earth. When dinosaurs ruled the earth, this is the time, the very beginning, before man was master. This is the time when men lived in fear, and the color of a woman's hair decided who should be sacrificed. Starring Victoria Vetri, who could tame any man. Who could even train man's deadliest enemy? Necro! This is the time of unimaginable dangers. Danger from above. Danger from below. Danger from every living thing in this primitive world. It is a time of beginnings and of rituals involving primitive Godzilla suits, of beach resorts inhabited by woefully malnourished men and physically perfect women in bikinis. We join Sana, Victoria Vetri, as she escapes being sacrificed to the sun on account of being a dark-haired actress wearing a blonde wig. She is rescued by Tara, Robin Halden, and his weedy crew of fisher folk and begins a new life with his tribe. Unfortunately, King Sor, Patrick Allen, leader of Shauna's tribe, catches up with her and plans to resume her sacrifice as the sun is clearly on the blink. Escaping again, she makes friends with various creatures, including a python, a baby dinosaur, and its mom. Terra, meanwhile, has less luck either being repeatedly captured by King Sor's men or menaced by land, sea, and air-based dinosaurs. Will Sana and her baby dinosaur friend get their own TV series? Can King Sorg ever give up providing plot development between special effects scenes? Could Hammer actually win an Oscar for this film? Or will it be the last time they ever do dinosaurs? Answers to the above are no, 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 and yes! Yes! Nice. 
since nobody's asked me, I'm going to plow in. (laughs) (laughs) This film looks amazing. I watched it on Blu-ray and the Canary Islands locations are just beautifully photographed. It looks like the kind of place you'd really want to go. As I said with One Million Years B.C., Watching a film like this maybe requires a similar mindset to watching ballet or opera. You need to actively interpret or try to interpret what you are seeing in a different way than usual. Or even go to the Wikipedia plot synopsis just to check that what you have seen is what you think you've seen. The effects are also quite stunning and I think they really are worthy of the one Academy Award nomination which Hammer actually received for this film. That was at the 1971 Academy Awards where it lost to Bedknobs and Broomsticks. But what I enjoyed the most, and I really missed when she wasn't on screen, was Victoria Vetri as Sana. I think she gives a really committed and convincing performance under obviously really, really difficult conditions. Her character is resourceful enough to survive everything thrown at her, more so than Tara, actually. In fact, she rescues him more than once. And I like how this reverses the One Million Years BC plot, where we follow a female character. Sana never seems quite as capable as Raquel Welch's Loana. I think this is probably a good time just to mention how sad it was to lose Raquel Welsh just a few days ago, actually, as we record this episode. Rest in peace, Loana the Fair. Yeah, you're going to be missed, and thankfully we got your films to watch. It's one of the people I wish I would, I would have got a chance to meet earlier in life, but obviously it was not meant to be. But she was she, she did a wonderful job in so many movies. I'm going to miss her. And uh, our faults go to your her family and her friends in this time. Absolutely. Sana seems somehow less tested and more naive, but she can catch fish in her teeth. And that's pretty damn amazing. So for now, I'll say that I really enjoyed it but with some reservations. How about you, Steve? I really enjoyed Sana, and I think the reason she was so much more resilient than Tara was because the way the movie had set it up, because of her blonde hair and the way the blonde-haired people were always treated, Mm -hmm. they always had to be a little more resourceful. It looked like they were, for that tribe, they were the workers, they were the builders. They Mm -hmm. were always constantly doing whatever was required of them. Yeah. Where Tara, on the other hand, seemed to be more gathering the food, but he was more of like an exalted position mm-hmm. and probably less likely to have to do, I don't want to say he was pampered, but he because he did a lot of things, but I think his life was a lot easier than it was for Sana because she was able to find shelter, build shelters, and uh, make amazing friends and those kind <laughs> of things. <laughs> Tara obviously did have a fairly privileged existence and, uh, as you say, had to work a lot harder when things turned against him. Exactly. And I did not know going into this movie that it was going to be a a primitive language movie (laughs) again. And (laughs) because it starts off as as one million years B.C. with the opening narration and then Mm -hmm. it goes into the rest of it. I'm just like, okay, now I got to figure out what these words mean. Yep. And and there's one word they use over and over and over. so much i started to wonder what in the world it means or it is making things up and that's akita 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 everything's akita and 
at the, at the point in the movie, I finally figured it must just mean, hey, <laughs> Akita, hey. And then he'd point to the direction that things were going on because I want to ding it a little bit for lack of um, vocabulary. <laughs> Fair enough. But it doesn't take away from the enjoyment. The movie was, I thought, really well filmed. Mm. I enjoyed the uh, cinematography. But to me, just like of 1 million years BC, the real love of it is Jim Danforth and his team, you know, David Allen and Roger Dickens yeah. coming up with those wonderful stop motion dinosaurs and crab creatures and things like that, where it was just like, oh, those things were just really, really, really enjoyable. And I also enjoyed Victoria Vetri's performance, especially because she was a lot of times the one interacting with those um, stop motion figures, which we all know talking to other people. It's so hard to do when you're acting with nothing. Yeah. She was able to do that rather well. So I was pretty impressed with those two aspects of the film. It is a little elongated. <laughs> and we do know that King Sir is a very, very, very determined man mm -hmm. to get his blonde. <laughs> it sounds like we're exactly in sync with this one, Steve. Victoria Vetri and the dinosaurs were absolutely my two favorite elements as well. So that kind of worries me a bit when I'm about to ask you now about your favorite scene, because I think the chances are fairly high that it might be the same one. But let's let's find out. Well, my favorite scene, and this is to me where the movie started to make me really enjoy it, yeah. um, is the scene where she hid in the shell of the hatched baby dinosaur and the mama dinosaur finds her and thinks that she is her baby. Mm. And then she's basically raised with the other baby dinosaur that hatched earlier as siblings. And that whole relationship, it gave me a very um, land of the lost kind of vibe. Mm. And, you know, with Holly and her dinosaur, and I love land of the lost. Well, it's no great surprise. <laughs> You've absolutely taken my, my best scene. I thought Victoria Vetri was absolutely perfect in her responses to the mother dinosaur and the baby. Those sequences were just so charming and adorable. And I could absolutely see why. I don't know how serious they ever were, but Hammer were even talking about a potential TV series with Sana and her baby dinosaur. I mean, I do realize that it's a bit cutesy for some people, but how often does Hammer do cute? And so wonderfully well. I love too how Sana didn't panic and scream when the mother dinosaur found her but she actually treated treated it like i don't know a very very large dog and she smiled and her body language sort of showed that she wasn't a threat and of course this just instantly activated the dinosaur's maternal instincts and you could absolutely see why so the mother dinosaur was very very keen that sana tries some venison the effects in these sequences were just breathtaking. I was really struck by just how incredibly well Jim Danforth incorporates live action with his stop motion. It really is completely flawless. And I'll just make special note of the sequence later on in the film where the mother dinosaur appears and actually carries Sana away from danger 
literally by the seat of her pants. And in this sequence, Sana is briefly played by a stop-motion puppet. As with the consistent standard through the rest of the film, it's just done beautifully. The combination of the lighting, the matte painting, the flawless animation, and just the way that the live action is integrated. If I was to pick a second favorite scene, I'm going to go with something a little different than the special effects. And that was the scene where... Tara is coming back into the village, into his tribe, and King Sor has got them all riled up. And and basically, it reminds me of you have a sane person dealing with a mob. Mm -hmm. In their mind, the bad thing is going on. It must be her fault. Burn down her hut, and other people are throwing torches on. And he's trying to stop them, and he's realizing it's madness, sheer madness going on everywhere in his eyes. And... He's just looking at it like, what do I do? And that's, I thought, was very powerful. The only other person who did not succumb to it, but allowed it, was the leader of the Fisher tribe. He could see it too, but he knew he was powerless to do anything about it and did not resist it. And I thought it was interesting when you see the body language being shown by the two guys, you can feel that going on. I've been there where mob mentalities happen, and it's people don't think, they just react. And especially when people are are using somebody as a scapegoat. But I, think, I thought that was done rather well. What did you think? That's a really good point. I went into this film convinced that Robin Horden was completely miscast. But despite myself, I ended up appreciating his performance a lot more than I expected. Physically, I don't really think he's right at all. But his facial performance was perfect because of all the characters bar Victoria Vetri, he was the one that you could see instantly what he was thinking. Just by his facial expression, just by his eyes, he did a surprisingly good job. And you're right to single out the so-called leader of the seaside tribe. As you say, he wanted to do the right thing, but his deficiencies as a leader became more and more clear as the more belligerent Kingsaw gradually started to take things over. And this is reasonably complicated politics, having to be performed, obviously, without complicated language at least especially because the um the leader of the sea tribe earlier on was shown doing the right thing mm. when some of the women were trying to go after sana and um and he stood up for yes and you've just reminded me of course that the leader of the seaside tribe broke up that not at all gratuitous wrestle in the surf between the three women, which was obviously a very very crucial plot point and there to move the story along clearly <laughs> now steve are you ready to talk about the poster all right so when i look at the poster i'm always drawn right away to two things <laughs> that i see and then and then you start to realize there's other stuff on the poster and of course as any man would know the two things i'm focused on is, is the, the big dinosaur in the background you know holding her which is a later scene in the movie and of course the other dinosaur um, in, in, on, the, on the right side, uh, focusing on those, which is like the Baranosaurus-type dinosaur. Uh, How could anyone think you meant anything else? That, that just seems so obvious, Steve. I think so, hmm. too. I don't know, I mean, where, what people are thinking of. No. I mean, eh, who knows? I actually like this poster. I, I really enjoy it. I think it, it sells the movie. You do have the image of the interpretive dance number mm -hmm. going on, and, and you see Tara... You know, chained up 
like like Samson, though he doesn't have the strength of Samson. <laughs> it could be that hair. Who knows? Maybe if he would have let it grow longer. Um, you got the early scene with, with the blondes about to be sacrificed. I like the coloring of it. I like the way it imaged. I and, mean, of course, you have um, Sana right there in the foreground telling you she's a this badass warrior. Mm-hmm. She wasn't as much of a warrior, but she was definitely a badass, um, able to overcome a lot of different things, sometimes by befriending and sometimes by um, fighting back, mm. it depending on what the circumstances called for. And then, of course, that's the upper two-thirds of the poster. The bottom third is the um, the text, you know, where the, it has the tagline. Um, I love when the dinosaurs ruled the earth, how it looks like it's carved out of stone yeah. and it's love to own a poster like this, mm-hmm. you know, just to have on the wall. Well, you've uh, led me in perfectly because for once I'm not looking at a book or a website to describe this one. Last year I was was having coffee with an older friend who was a huge film buff, and he knew that I love Hammer. And he produced this large folded sheet of paper and asked if it was something I'd be interested in. So on opening it up, on opening it up, I was absolutely stunned to find that it was an original one sheet movie poster for When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth, the very poster that we are talking about now. So I'm just going to try and rotate my computer around, Steve, so that you can see what is proudly framed above my desk and I wonder when you look over, what two things do you focus on? The typography <laughs> and um, the, the typography. <laughs> <laughs> I was absolutely blown away when he just handed this uh, to me. And of course, I got it framed as, as quickly as possible. Online sources tell me it is a Tom Chantrell poster. And it, it's just stunning to look at. Interestingly, you referred to the color about three quarters of the poster is predominantly in a sort of bluish green tone. And then the bottom right is in flame and flesh tones. And this is exactly the color palette which became overwhelmingly fashionable for film posters probably over the last 10 years. If you look back, you'll see that this color scheme occurs again and again and again. Tom Chantrell was first all those decades ago. I think he clearly watches the film that he's going to illustrate because as you pointed out, there's all these little sequences from the film, some of them not especially significant, but they're all there in his usual perfectly accurate detail. He also produced the pre-production painting, which James Carreras typically shopped around to get the film financed. And it's quite interesting just putting the two side by side. Of course, I love this poster because I'm very proud to say I've got it. You got it. And and I'm jealous. (laughs) I'm jealous. But I know you're jealous of one of the posters I have. So it's it's a mad, 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 mad world. So it's a... So I guess we could say we can balance each other out in our jealousy. I think so. I think so, which always makes for a healthy relationship, doesn't it? (laughs) Now, I'm going to go on to connections. You may have some of your own, Steve, but I just wanted to mention these ones in, in particular. They're not all with Hammer films. First of all, when we covered One Million Years BC, I sampled Frankie Goes to Hollywood's Two Tribes, and it famously opens with... When you hear the air attack warning, you and your family must take cover. 
Now little did I know that those words were actually recorded by an actor called Patrick Allen. Patrick Allen, of course, plays King Saw in this film, putting his very famous voice to wonderful use as a monosyllabic cave gentleman. Well, in fact, that's not quite true because he also does the opening narration. Now, according to Little Shop of Horrors magazine, the immensely popular two-legged predatory dinosaurs like the Tyrannosaurus do not appear in this film because someone on the production team do you know about this, Steve? No. Someone on the production team felt that their posture was camp. What? I'm just going to leave a moment of disbelieving silence there. So, <laughs> Steve, the expression on your face. <laughs> the effects team had to devise a four-legged predator instead. Something which doesn't actually exist in the dinosaur kingdom. So by accident or design, their mother dinosaur resembles Ray Harryhausen's Redosaurus from The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. And I've always liked to believe that it was a knowing homage actually intended to be the same species, even though it's not stated. I'm just thinking now, we know that the baby dinosaur mm -hmm. got frozen in time when it got to be an adult and came back in that movie. It all ties together. It <laughs> ties together beautifully. Now, finally... As we all know, this film is name-checked in a spectacular way at the climax of Jurassic Park, the original Jurassic Park, when that gigantic Tyrannosaurus somehow sneaks its way into the visitor center to save our heroes at the end from the raptors. And as it roars in triumph, a banner reading, when dinosaurs ruled the earth, flutters through the air. Now we know that Spielberg cast Christopher Lee, in one of his films. But I've never actually seen this confirmed as a deliberate tribute. It's really fun though. And of course we all know he put the Tyrannosaurus Rex in Jurassic Park because he was looking for that campy factor. Yeah. He realized that that's what was missing. He needed a camp dinosaur. Yeah. Good grief. I wonder if that applies to Godzilla as well. Them, them be fighting words. <laughs> <laughs> now, Steve, talking about making me jealous, you've been in a position many, many times where you have actually met people who have appeared in these films. Would you like to talk about the time that you met Sana? Yes, I was, I was fortunate enough about two years ago to meet Victoria Vetri at Monster Bash. And she was just a real nice, wonderful person. She had a great sense of humor. You know, she was always trying to make people laugh and have fun and she was talking about her Italian ancestry and she was even speaking in Italian. She was so accommodating and nice to fans. It was just a wonderful time meeting and chatting with her. And of course, uh, mm -hmm. stupid me did not put it together at the time that she was in a Hammer movie. So the guy that tries to get these <laughs> Hammer actors and actresses to sign in his Hammer poster book didn't bring it with him and didn't dawn on me till later. And I was just like, oh, yes, yes, Al. I could see you in your face. How stupid could he be? But that, yeah, <laughs> I didn't realize it was a Hammer movie at the time. I actually want to burst into tears hearing that. Oh, no. But I do have pictures with her and had to met her and stuff like that. And she is a wonderful person. Now she does have blonde hair. 
love to meet her, love to chat with her, and I wish you would have the opportunity too. But um, people can follow along on, on Facebook. She's out there on Facebook. Mm. I did mention it before, but the Little Shop of Horrors magazine, which covers when dinosaurs ruled the earth, is really the definitive guide to this film. And it has a wonderful interview with Victoria Vetri in there as well. Yes, yeah, Steve, I'm really, really jealous. And heartbroken that you didn't get her to sign that wonderful that wonderful poster in the Art of Hammer book. But I also have to mention a similar situation where I interviewed someone who I didn't even realize was in When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth. Now, to my defense, his role isn't named, but it was none other than John Levine, who is probably well known to a lot of people as Sergeant Benton from Doctor Who. I had a very, very long and enjoyable interview with Mr. Levine quite a few years ago now when he was in New Zealand, I think staying with his son. But anyway, had a great chat. But Unfortunately, the subject of When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth just didn't come up. Now, he's listed everywhere as appearing in the film. I'm assuming that he was one of the uh, cave gentlemen, but probably hidden under a shaggy beard and very, very difficult to spot. So, Steve, you're not the only one. I made the same mistake. Yeah, you make the mistake with somebody that was hidden underneath a beard and, and, and a wig. <laughs> I make the mistake with the star of the movie. Okay, yeah, it makes <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> these things happen. We've both come such a long way since then. I, I try to believe so. You're, you're, I feel like I'm Luke Skywalker to your Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> I'd like to think of myself as a crazy old wizard living in sand dunes. That describes me pretty well, actually. Always taking the high ground. <laughs> <laughs> so have we reached our final thoughts, Steve? I think so. Let me let me take a drink of this um, blue milk. <sighs> oh, that was fresh from the beast. <laughs> that still makes me feel very uncomfortable. That's not my Luke Skywalker. But anyway, moving well, on. Well, I gotta go off with canon. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed the film. I, when I first started out, I was leery. The first maybe 10 minutes, 20 minutes, I was worried significantly. Like, oh my mm -hmm. lord, is this going down the wrong path? And then it started to pick up thankfully with the stop motion. And then it really started to hit its stride, like I said earlier, when she hit it in the shell and the baby dinosaur and all that stuff in the music chain mm. and everything. From that point on, I was cool with and really enjoyed. Now, this is a movie, I'd almost say, all children can watch this, except there are a couple of scenes where young children shouldn't watch. <laughs> and if you take away those those couple of scenes, this is a perfectly G-rated film that anybody of any ages mm. can watch and enjoy i would just say as a parent mm -hmm. watch it first and then you know you could always do the old covered her eyes thing glad i have it on blu-ray i wish the blu-ray had extras beyond the trailer i tried to get an interview with mr danforth and um, the person i was working with he doesn't do interviews or was re was reluctant to do an interview because of his hearing issues and he's not able to hear so he doesn't want to do an audio interview and he's busy writing his books so we'll still get the information that way what about your final thoughts, Al? Well, I've been kind so far, but I really do need to list some grievances. Now, first of all, good Lord, oh, I don't expect 
everyone to have Marvel abs, but the um, men in this film clearly aren't having much luck catching food. I mean, I've been thin-shamed all my life, so I should be the last person to do it. I think what I'm trying to articulate is that in casting, there's a gross inequality here. I don't believe that the male actors had to strive to come up with the same imagined standards that the production team had for the women who probably half killed themselves with dietary and exercise regimes to achieve the figure that they did. And when you come to casting the men, it seems that all you really needed was an equity card. And it mattered far less how you looked. And that just annoys me a bit. John Richardson, I believe, is unfairly maligned for his acting, but in one million years BC, at least he looked the part. A really clear example of animal cruelty, Irwin Allen style, towards the end, where you have um, a couple of real animals dressed up in fins and horns. We've seen this before, but the way that these two creatures are going at each other, they've obviously been provoked, and yeah, it actually even upsets me talking about it now, so I'm going to move on. Ultimately, though, it's Victoria Vetri's screen presence and the flawless stop-motion effects which really win me over. Jim Danforth actually experimented with motion blur in this film. I'm not sure if, if the mighty Ray Harryhausen ever did that, but it would be another 10 years before ILM would develop Go Motion, which is along the same principles. I think, first of all, for The Empire Strikes Back, and then most notably in Dragon Slayer. Oh, I love Dragon Slayer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Danforth's work is technically precise, almost perfect in terms of its interactive lighting and its interaction with live action. But I think you might agree, Ray Harryhausen remains the king for imbuing his characters with personality and life. Now, Roger Dickon, who incidentally did your favorite Hammer bat from Scars of Dracula, I can remember how much you loved that bat, Steve. <laughs> uh, he was hired as Danforth's assistant, and he actually did the sculpts and the molds of the creatures. So that's a fairly significant contribution to, to this film, because not only did the dinosaurs move beautifully, but they just look amazing. So, in conclusion... If you want dinosaurs, you really get them in this film. And sadly, it was to be the last time for Hammer. This film in One Million Years BC, I always find it funny when people are like, oh, of course, the humans and the dinosaurs never would have been together. This is, you know, and I'm, this is this is fantasy. This is science fiction. You know, who does mm. it remember? In this world, the moon hasn't even been formed yet. There was probably nothing alive. <laughs> you just got to go with it. It is kind of the point of the entire film. So if you're not prepared to go with that, then, you know, why are you even watching? But Al. Steve. Just before we talk about them, some feedback that we've gotten, mm. um, I think it's time for us to roll the die to see what, what movie we're going to be doing next. Oh, yes. Yes, let's. And for those listeners wondering, on the dice rolls, number one is Dracula. Number two is Frankenstein. Number three is The Mummy. Number four, science fiction. Number five, prehistory. Number six, ah, uh, I'll let you say that because you love saying it. The experimental 1970s. Yes, our favorite one, I think, of the six, you know, is, is the seven. It's definitely the wild card, isn't it? Yes. And we roll 
a six. So, Al. Unbelievable. <laughs> we're going back to that groovy time. <laughs> okay, Steve. I'm going to suggest something which might not be popular with you, but as we have already covered The Vampire Lovers, I think we should go on to the next film in the Karnstein trilogy sequence and to Lust for a Vampire. Do you think you can handle that? I think I can, and I don't, I don't remember, mm-hmm. but so I'm, I don't, this might be a first-time watch. You just don't know what you're going to get. It could be the best thing ever. So let's just see how this one pans out. And speaking of how things pan out, we got feedback from Richard Chamberlain. Yes. About our episode, The Lodge, and he also gave us his top 10 movies that we've done so far. So let's drop the needle on Rich. Hello, gentlemen. This is Richard from the Classic Horrors Club podcast, calling in to share some thoughts on your recent episodes, your podcast in general, and, uh, well, a request that you, you put out to the, to the potosphere a couple of episodes back. Now, I want to to start off, though, and, and simply say that you guys are putting forth an absolutely wonderful podcast. I've said it before. I will say it again. You guys continue to really entertain me with every, every episode. And I love the length. The length is perfect. Don't change it. That's my, that's my, my two cents. Okay. The Lodge. Let's talk about that real quick. What a depressing film. Oh my gosh. This has been on my list to watch for a while. And I will simply say that I am glad that I watched it, but it was incredibly grim. I will acknowledge that it was a, I thought it was a beautifully made film. Uh, there was some, some tremendous moments in this film. There, there was a, a foreboding feeling of dread throughout. Um, and I, I kind of love when a film like that comes along and it allows me to just kind of be on edge because I've seen so many horror movies and it, it's not that often that a, that a movie gets those feelings out of me. So I appreciate what The Lodge brought to the table. But I have two big problems with this film. One is... I think some of the unbelievability of it. Um, I, I don't necessarily, I don't believe that the kids could be as intelligent as they were simply because, I mean, they were still grieving the loss of their mother. I, I, I don't disbelieve that they would perhaps have feelings of, of negativity and, and, and could perhaps be ingenious in some ways. But what they pulled off, though, just it doesn't, doesn't make sense. They didn't have the time, and in my opinion anyway. I had to suspend belief on that a little bit once the reveal kind of comes about. And I guess maybe I'm giving a bit of a spoiler here, but this is a film that I do feel that everyone should see, but you got to know going into it, it, it is a very grim film. And not giving away the ending of the film, I will simply say that I have a really hard time when something negative or or horrific happens to children in films, or even if it's implied, and the film is set in what I view as the real world. I can see kids being chased by dinosaurs, and I'm okay because that's a fantasy. This, to me, was set in the real world. There wasn't much fantasy about this. This is something that really could happen. And the ending bothered me. 
that's that's a thing that I have. I just don't like to see violence or implied violence towards kids in films. And the end, man, it was it was dark. I can say that I'm glad that I saw this film. It didn't ruin the overall experience, but I definitely wouldn't see this again. But I do recommend people see it as long as they know going into it. It is not a cheerful holiday film in any way, shape, or form. Okay, let's end this on a much happier note. You had requested a couple episodes back for our own personal top ten of the movies that you have covered so far. I'm going to just rattle these off real quick, and and we'll wrap it up. So I've actually seen, of the twelve that you have now covered after this particular episode, I've seen ten of the twelve. Here's my top ten. Obviously, The Lodge, number ten, not a surprise. Quatermass in the Pit, number nine. I really love the first two films. I'm not a fan of the third one as much. Number eight, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. I like it a little bit better than Quatermass, but not one of my personal favorites. The Mummy Shroud. I really find this one. It's fun. It's not the best. It's, it's, a, it's not nearly as good as the original Mummy, but it does have Roger Delgado, who is the definitive master for me, and it elevates the movie. Uh, Vampire Lovers, number six. I really enjoy that. But Dracula does does bump Vampire Lovers. I love the Dracula series, even the bad Christopher Lee films. The only one that I struggle with is The Satanic Rites of Dracula, because that's a, a bit of a slog. But uh, number five, Dracula, Prince of Darkness. Number four, Dracula has risen from the grave. And then the top three, to me, are the big three. Curse of Frankenstein, number three. Dracula, number two. And The Mummy, number one. Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, huge fan. These movies, all three, have both of them in it, and that's why they're in my top three. I will say The Mummy surpasses the other two because it's got a simply amazing score. There's my own personal top ten. Gentlemen, I'm loving the show. You're knocking it out of the park, and I absolutely look forward to what you've got coming up in future episodes. Thank you once again for everything you're doing. Keep on doing it. Don't make any changes. And uh, take care. Oh, that was fantastic. Thank you so much, Rich. That was very comprehensive and thought-provoking. You make very, very good points about the Lodge. I think Steve and I were pretty honest when we recorded the episode in talking about aspects of it which may not appeal to some people. And it was wonderful to hear your top 10 pick as well. I agree with a lot of that and surprised, probably pleasantly surprised actually, to see that you put the mummy above Dracula and Frankenstein. But I really can't disagree about the soundtrack. In fact, it's something of an earworm. Since Steve and I recorded that episode, I've been finding it quite difficult to get out of my head. I agree with a lot of what you said. As for the Lodge... Yes, it is, a, like we said before, it's a powerful, grim movie. I can watch those more than once. I know other people can only watch them once. Um, I know, Al, when you brought it up, you, you were reluctant to watch it again, but enjoyed it more the mm. second time. I did, yeah. Start to focus on other things that are going on. Mm. And I agree with you with the, the, the mummy. It surprised me when he put that as number one over to things but everybody's drawn to different things and mm. that's that's what i find interesting and i'm i'm looking forward to our next movie as well steve it's, it's one of those ones that is notoriously held in low regard by many fans but it sounds like you might be coming to it reasonably fresh 
Um, so as ever, looking forward to discussing it with you. I'm looking forward to it too. And listeners, I'm also looking forward to hearing more feedback. With Al and I love to hear the feedback. You can do mm. like Rich did and send us an MP3. And he sent it to us at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can send it to us via Facebook Messenger. Or you can also leave us comments on our Facebook page at Diecast Movie Podcast. So all that really remains for us both to say is... Akita! Such a wonderful phrase. <laughs> this is staying in. Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast.